This is the Case Dot Report. Welcome everyone to episode one of the Case Dot Report. Mohammed Hams is my name, and I'm delighted to have you with us as we start off on what's sure to be a very exciting journey. This month, we're tackling you know who, the beta coronavirus who shall not be named. For our first segment, I'll be joined by two of my esteemed trainee colleagues as we chat through a case. Abdul Sattar Abdul Safras, or just Safras, and Carl Kavanagh, or just Carl, will lend us their knowledge and help us explore this case. And then we'll get a grown up to check our work. Let's get to it. Hey, Carl. Hi, Mo. How are you? Not too bad. And I think Saf is with us as well. Yeah, hi, Mo. How are you? Not too bad. Great to have you guys. Okay, Carl, do you want to tell us what we're dealing with? So today we're going to be talking about a surprise topic of COVID-19. <laughs> Maybe we shouldn't give the game away, though. <laughs> or it might not be. <laughs> Just give us a case and see what, see what we think. <laughs> Could be anything at all. So I'm going to give you a clinical scenario. You'll never guess what it might be at the end. So we're going to talk about a 45-year-old lady, about a week's-long history of cough, intermittent fevers, all quite subjective pretty active lady she runs 5k on the weekend is missing all the coffee shops during the pandemic over the last two days she's just started getting a little bit more short of breath than usual walking upstairs she finds she's out of breath once she reaches the top of the stairs rings the gp gp is concerned says listen pop on over to the emergency department get checked out so what would you do in this situation? Patient arrives outside your hospital. Okay, so first things first, she's standing outside the tent or the cabin or the chip van, whatever we have outside our <laughs> department. And uh, she gets triaged to the appropriate area of the emergency department. And then Saf is in, uh, waiting for her inside and he's going to manage her appropriately because he's the uh, clinician in charge of that zone. So Saf, tell us what you're going to do. First thing first. So you wear your PPEs and you make sure your patient is wearing a mask. And I'm sure the triage nurse will trigger you if she requires resuscitation or whether she can go to, come to a normal cubicle in the floor. And then, as always, your A, B, C, D, E assessment. So we're assessing the patient. Carl, how's she looking? So she's actually quite well. Looking at her, you wouldn't think she is in any way unwell. On closer inspection, you notice her respiration is, it's about the 20 mark, 21, 22. Her O2 sats are 94 and uh, heart rate is hovering around the 100. BP is okay at 128 over 84. Okay. Her temperature is 37.5 at the moment, but she says earlier she was checked in the GPs and she had a 38.1 temp, but received some paracetamol. So she's maintaining an ARV and there's a bit of a breathing issue which, which is tachypneic so we are giving oxygen for that and the circulation she's maintaining a blood pressure we will uh, we are giving oxygen and then we are going to reassess as to how she's getting on and i suppose while we're getting all those bits set up then we'll do our other bits of assessments or her bloods cultures swab and arrange for chest x-ray and all that as part of her bloods, generally speaking, I suppose most patients in the emergency department would be okay with a VBG to have a look at immediate results from that. How do we feel about ABGs for this patient? So I think it, it actually is going to be vital in this patient. She's just hovering around the 94 mark. An ABG mm -hmm. is actually going to give you a lot of benefits. She could be just really well compensating and actually yeah. be quite hypoxic. 
or hypoxemic even. We know from our oxygen association curve that there's a number of different things that can affect the relationship between our saturations and our PO2. And I suppose we're going to see a lot that the oxygen requirements in these patients tend to start escalating as, as time goes on. So kind of having a baseline for her and a baseline PF ratio would be kind of beneficial as things go on. Absolutely, absolutely. And the nurse actually comes in to you in your COVID zone or whatever zone you call it and says that she looks well now and we're all quite happy with her. But when she was walking in, she was gasping while walking. Mm. So she's improved at rest. Okay, so she's got a pretty poor exercise tolerance with her uh, with her dyspnea. Okay, right. So we've sent off all those bloods anyways. Her um, How's her ABG looking actually, Carl? So her pH is fine at 7.38. Her PCO2 is 6 and her PO2, however, it's at 9.2. And this was taken before we popped the three litres nasal prongs on. So this was on room air. That's not great, is it? No. No, she needs a few more PO2s in there. And we get her down to, we get her down to x-ray. What do we see on, on her x-ray? Grossly, nothing. But after you kind of take a step back, you look and there's a small wee consolidation at the right mid-zone peripherally. And you think there might be one in the left lower zone. Uh, if you squint hard enough, you'll always see something. Exactly. Yeah. Turn it sideways. Yeah. <laughs> something else to consider as well would be what we could see on ultrasound. So... Do we have an ultrasound available in that part of the department staff? Yeah, we do. Who's cleaning it is the question. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That was going to be the next question then. <laughs> uh, did you see anything with the ultrasound staff? And yeah, you might see a bit of a, um, a thickening of the pleura and you can see subpleural consolidation. And of, of course, you can see the B lines. Brilliant. So we'll have a bit more of a chance to put the ultrasound findings in a little while. Now, it's great that you took the initiative and had a look with it anyway. So that's, that's brilliant. But yeah, and of course, you made sure someone cleaned it thoroughly afterwards. Okay. So, right. With all that information, what do we think is going on? going on Carl having the foggiest so <laughs> this this lady's hitting a, a good few of the markers for COVID-19 as Saf correctly said you absolutely want this lady in the COVID zone or the hot zone or the bottle room zone whatever you want to call it what else could be going on with her COVID is one one option just to go along with that I suppose we'd have to say that presentation and findings on uh, radiology especially they're they're going to be quite similar to other viral uh, pneumonias so what, like what else could be going on with her besides all that uh, stuff? Yeah, it could be other viral pneumonias. As you correctly said, the differential diagnosis will be PE. It could be heart failure. Yeah, and I suppose it's important to mention bacterial pneumonia exactly. as well. Patients can often be co-infected with, with a bacterial pneumonia as well. So it's important not to forget about that. Especially with those infiltrates on the x-ray. Yes, indeed. What's the plan for this lady going forward? Where you work, do you have COVID regions? Yeah, so we have our COVID admitting teams. So the, the medical teams are very good. They're in the department most of the time and very responsive and come and see the patients as quickly as possible. So I, I suppose that's kind of where I was going with that one. We need to get this lady through the department quickly get her to a dedicated isolation bed in the hospital pending her uh, her swab and i suppose just liaise with the admitting team about what we think is appropriate management uh, going forward for her i actually think you've hit the nail spot on the head there mo that flow is the key if the flow isn't there everything grinds to a halt you have ambulances queued up for three miles 
Yeah, I think throughput has always been a challenge in our emergency departments, but kind of nowadays, especially with our segregated mm. zones, our space is at a premium. So we need to absolutely maximize our throughput. And it's all down to the teamwork with the in-house teams and the flow managers. And it seems to be working very well so far. Everyone's really dug in really well. Right. So that's that lady sorted. On to the next one. <laughs> um, yeah. So let's just kind of have a chat about COVID in general then. Tell us a bit about it there, Seth. So COVID, so it's, it's caused by a, a coronavirus, one of the strains of beta coronavirus. We know in the past, we had SARS and MERS. Looking at it in an Irish context, where we where do we stand with this as of right now? We have 22,541 confirmed cases. And out of that, 1,429 deaths. So just so everyone knows, we're recording on the 9th of May. So we've got figures from the 8th of May currently. They're our most up-to-date figures. And you can find all of the up-to-date figures for whatever day you're listening on on the HPSC website. And I suppose an interesting part of that is the uh, the proportion of healthcare workers affected. But we'll get back to that. Carl, can you tell us about the social measures? What are we doing to try and curb this or stop the spread, flatten the curve? So social distancing or physical distancing, as we probably move to be called, is an Absolute key. So currently the lockdown conditions have started to ease that your original exercise distance of two kilometers is extended out to five kilometers. Certain shops and services have begun to open up with, again, physical distancing. And it seems that en masse it is being followed. By and large, people are observing um, the physical distancing. Hand sanitizers are at an absolute premium um, and are being snapped off the shelf. So they're being used. The couple of things that do concern us, so a lot of people seem to be using gloves and as anyone listening would know, gloves are only to be used for a designated task. What you kind of hate to see is the gloves on the hands touching the shopping trolley, touching everything on the shelves, then touching your face and then back to the trolley and you're spreading mm. everything from you to everywhere yeah. else and from everywhere else exactly. back up to your nose. So it's not great, not great. The transmission is basically by either by respirator droplets or contact transmission. And the other one is the aerosol transmission. But the contact is, a, is an important point, actually, Seth, because yeah. we know that the, the fires can survive on different surfaces for different lengths of time, but could be up to four exactly. days on, um, on, on certain surfaces. Yeah. So it is important to take care with our hand hygiene and all that. Then talking about PPE, we've talked about our gloves just for patient contact in the hospitals. We talked about the alcohol hand rubs, which thankfully we still have enough of uh, around the place. Can you tell me about donning and doffing our PPE, Carl? Full formal evening wear really. So all staff going into a suspected case needs to be dying the full PPE. A buddy system is key in this because naturally you would start to not skip steps, but miss steps in your eagerness. So doing it in a pair just to make sure that you're not missing anything. So gloves, double yeah. gloves, a long sleeve gown and an adequate surgical mask with eye protection. If you're using aerosol based procedures, you need an FFP2 or above instead of the surgical mask. And it needs to be fit checked as someone who up until recently had a beard. That is a necessity. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose that's an important point about the respirators that are FFP2s and FFP3s. They are necessary for aerosol generating procedures, but everything else, we should be okay with uh, with our surgical masks as long as we take care and not touch them. Thankfully, we haven't had too many shortages, but in case of limited supplies, we should be saving those FFP2s and 3s for those AGPs. Above all, you know, 
this part is probably going to be one of the most important parts because we do need to look after ourselves first and foremost. What we mentioned earlier on about the cases in Ireland so far of those 22,541, we've got about 29%, 29.5% as of yesterday are in healthcare workers, which is a pretty high proportion, especially compared to other countries. I honestly don't know what to do with that number or how to interpret it. Like, is it just, you know, a product of our great social distancing and kind of limiting the spread in the community? Or is it more to do with, as Paul Cullen in the Irish Times suggested, that it's a product of insufficient PPE or kind of late cancellation of elective procedures in hospitals? Where's his quote? He says, to paraphrase Oscar Wilde, to lose one healthcare worker to this disease is a misfortune. To lose this many looks like carelessness. <laughs> so Paul's, Paul's, Paul's quite harsh on that. That topic. Uh, I honestly don't know where or where to, where to land on that one, but but it is quite a high proportion of us. So we do need to make sure that we are personally looking after yeah. ourselves. And I suppose that's the the importance of the sieve and source uh, outside of triage. Mm-hmm. That it's the correct identification of the risk factors themselves, and especially those atypical cases, the the older persons, the younger people, the immunocompromised patients who might not present with the, the standard cough, fever, or shortness of breath. You might have just not quite right kind of category or um, a collapse, confusion, diarrhea. Absolutely. And I suppose beyond looking after ourselves in terms of PPE and looking after ourselves physically, the mental health consequences on uh, healthcare workers are are important to note as well. So there is that important paper in JAMA that was looking at the mental health consequences on people working in Wuhan on the front lines there. And I suppose the, the findings there were pretty interesting. So there is high rates of depression, about 50% of the 1,200 or so um, healthcare workers they surveyed had uh, depression, anxiety in about 45%. A lot of them had insomnia and different levels of generalized distress and what's interesting is the effects were greater in nurses women and those directly caring for virus patients and everyone kind of at the epicenter of it like it was an interesting paper i suppose shows that maybe those people that have to spend the longest with covid patients in those isolation rooms in full ppe they might be the worst affected so it's an important one to note as well and keep an eye on each other and look after ourselves and each other yeah absolutely and and there are a number of wellness apps out there the royal college of emergency medicine has brought out their wellness app um st james hospital has just brought out their own wellness app it definitely does need to be addressed and everyone does need to look after themselves and and each other is the key. If you don't have access to either of those as well, there's websites like mindthefrontline.com that have pretty good mental health resources for healthcare workers as well. So there's lots out there um, if you feel you need it. Then in terms of how this is going to present, Saf, can you talk us through the classification and presentation of this? 80% of these patients can present with mild symptoms. About 14% will have severe symptoms and about 5% will have respiratory failure who requires uh, ICU admission. You have those different phenotypes mentioned, the, the L phenotype, those kind of patients that present with the with the early kind of viral symptoms, then the H phenotype, more typical of the of the ARDS picture. And the, uh, the incubation period is about four to five days and the 70, nearly about 75% will develop symptoms between two to seven days. And out of about 97% will develop symptoms about 11 days. I suppose another um, feature of different presentations that you hear a lot about is that hyperinflammatory stage or cytokine storm. Sounds scary. <laughs> yeah. When you go through the stages of the disease, the stage one will be the mild form of the disease. So sort of the viral response starts. And you come to the stage two, which is a pulmonary phase. And then the host inflammatory response will kick in. 
And that's when the cytokine storm starts. The cyto- cytokine storm is a severe reaction which causes a hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis. I hope I pronounced it correctly. It's a bit of a mouthful. God. <laughs> it's worth 28 points in Scrabble. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think the board's big enough. <laughs> In terms of kind of the biochemical picture, at least anyways, it's characterized by the elevated inflammatory markers, CRP, LDH, IL-6. You'll have super high dimers and ferritins. Clinically speaking, you'll probably get kind of an ARDS picture or the patient might seem like they're in septic shock. Could trigger a heart failure picture as well. Then I suppose... Our immediate management, we mentioned earlier on triage and department flow are kind of key here. So the HSE have a guideline for the COVID-19 risk assessment for use in receiving hospital settings. And I suppose it just emphasizes early recognition of suspected patients to allow the timely initiation of um, appropriate measures and to help identify early those with severe illness and pneumonia. But I suppose the key part here is to direct the flow appropriately. So make sure that we have our COVID areas, whatever you want to call it, and then our non-COVID areas. In terms of immediate management, then what else do we need to talk about, kind of, I suppose, in, in terms of our general approach? In ABCD approach. Our primary survey is very important but before we get to that. What's most important is mm-hmm. PPEs. Yeah, exactly. If you see the basic principles of the BLS is if the scene is not safe, do not enter. So make sure the yeah. scene is safe for you to enter. And I think having everything prepared before you go in is vital because you want to spend the least amount of time necessary to get a diagnosis and stabilize and come to a, a decision plan. And absolutely, just like you said, we need to minimize our contact time as much as possible. But at the same time, by maintaining the same standards of safety that we always have. So we need to be thorough while being concise, which can be a challenge. And not become blinkered either. So it's keeping the the wide-angled lens there. Uh, You know, it's kind of up to utmost importance that we keep our usual high standards for the care of the undifferentiated unwell. That's it. Uh, Carl, tell, tell us about diagnostics then. You would treat this largely as most respiratory cases that do come in. So you want your pulse oximetry. We've discussed the usefulness of a blood gas, your full blood count, any other blood tests. So we've mentioned uh, LDH, the ferritin, uh, the ILs, but you also want your renal profile, LFTs, the coag screen with your C-reactive protein and uh, a CK as well. In terms of swabbing, um, it really depends on what your site's policy is. I suppose blood yeah. cultures, if they're If the patient is spiking a temp, absolutely need blood cultures mm-hmm. taken aseptically. If they have respiratory features, absolutely a chest x-ray is indicated. CT is... A case-by-case basis. I suppose in terms of other imaging modalities, ultrasound we mentioned earlier on. So different findings we'd find on ultrasound would be, like Saf mentioned uh, most of these earlier on, the regular pleural line, the B lines, which could be regular or confluent, a patchy pattern with bilateral sparing or kind of areas of white lung or subpleural consolidations. And to be honest, I've I've probably only seen the the B lines in a lot of these patients. The regular pleural line have only picked up just the once, you know, so I think I just need to scan more lungs. (laughs) And I suppose one other investigation that's important not to forget, especially in this lady, a 40-odd-year-old lady. The beta HCG. That's the one. So I suppose it's just important to determine the status early and then kind of have planning decisions about delivery or termination made early in in conjunction with the appropriate specialists. Yeah. Right. So management then. 
So there's been a number of different algorithms published to help us decide the disposition of these patients. Um, but to be honest, in real life, things are rarely so black and white. So they're going to either be fit for home and supportive care, uh, fit to go to the ward with supportive care, or they're going to require ICU. So who goes where? You can have abnormalities in your vitals, abnormalities in your symptoms, or abnormalities in your x-ray. Any one of these, for me, is enough to consider an admission. If all three are clear, I'm happy going home. So if there's mild symptoms, they're vitally stable. There's no evidence of any desaturation. Um, but the biggest thing when they are going home is the advice for self-isolation. Absolutely. What about the patients that can't self-isolate at home? You need to make sure that there is that facility or if they're in a hostel, if they're in, um, if they're liaised with certain services, that you link in with those um, facilities. You can get your medical social worker involved um, if your hospital has inclusion health. It's important to use that kind of multidisciplinary approach to best facilitate the patient's discharge. So that's who goes home. And we've talked about who comes in. Who goes to ICU? The IAEM have published guidelines on when a patient requires a intensive care or critical care referral. And these would be if their saturations are less than 90% on a non-rebreather mask, if they have a respiratory acidosis of less than 7.2, a respiratory rate of greater than 40, or an inability to protect or maintain airway. Or an urgent review will be needed if the systolic blood pressure is less than 90 millimeters of mercury, or if there is clinical evidence of um, shock. So you're talking about your ultra level of consciousness, decreased urine output after adequate volume resuscitation. It's a very, very helpful guideline, and we're going to leave the link for that in our show notes as well. But you can find it on the IEM website's clinical guidelines page as well. I suppose something that's a little bit less clear, and it's probably the most challenging thing about all this, who doesn't go to ICU? So it's very, it, it is probably one of the toughest decisions a clinician is going to make. So this is the point at which we realize that end-of-life care and planning and decisions are just too nuanced a topic for us to deal with at this, at this point right now with the short space that we have. So we will revisit this topic more fully at a later date. These very unwell patients, how are we fixing them? It's a really good uh, guideline, internal guideline released by IAM on respiratory support for COVID-19 patients. As for their COVID respiratory scale, can give them some oxygen. Our general highlights in our kind of immediate management would be supplemental oxygen as required, like you discussed there, Saf. Yeah. Judicious fluid therapy. And this is kind of a tricky balancing act because I suppose aggressive resuscitation can exacerbate respiratory failure. But we also need to be cautious of the unwell patient that may be normal, tensive and dehydrated. And I suppose the evidence coming out now is that we've been running these patients a little bit too dry. Consider proning the patient if tolerated. And I suppose just from my own personal experience, I don't know about you guys, but like this has been remarkable, like yeah. really good. Consider NIV. So the early evidence we were getting wasn't favorable, um, but there's kind of more encouraging results for CPAP and high flow nasal oxygen more recently. We're keeping a keeping a close eye on the recovery RS trial ongoing in Warwick. We'd also consider tubing early if we're heading in that direction. So kind of make sure that you front load the decision making and involve the experienced personnel early. So whether that's your own consultant getting ICU uh, involved early, and it's important as well to kind of formalize the processes by using a COVID-19 RSI checklist, which you may have a local one adapted, but if not, I am have a great one and we'll leave the link for that in the show notes as well. And it goes without saying 
so obviously will be said um, <laughs> is that uh, intubation and NIV these are aerosol generating procedures so you've got to be very very careful where you're doing it it's important that it happens in an isolation space with negative pressure if that's what's available in terms of specific therapies <laughs> man like what are we there's about 600 trials registered with uh with the who currently uh, there's looking at all different aspects of COVID 19 um but even at that we still have very very sketchy evidence for everything that we have at our disposal at the moment um we'll come back to do a deeper dive on therapeutics and evidence behind them in a later stage but just to quickly mention we've got chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine and the bmj has said use of these drugs is premature and potentially harmful so that's a ringing endorsement isn't it i wouldn't put it on the book cover yeah <laughs> the combination of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin no evidence that combination is more effective than hydroxychloroquine alone lopinavir ritonavir which is shown in an rct in the new england journal no benefit versus standard care there's a hc position paper as well on tocilizumab which is an experimental il6 inhibitor for patients with covid19 with the suspected hyperinflammatory state, that's like that very scary cytokine storm that we mentioned earlier on. But I suppose, you know, four months ago, no one would have thought about adopting a treatment regimen based on the studies that we have. But here we are. One or two sketchy papers are affecting management on a global scale, which is like remarkable slash scary. I'm personally holding out hope for the trials around turmeric oil injections. <laughs> There's five trials as well studying different herbal remedies in PO or IV or even topical form. And there's four, yes, four individual trials studying honeysuckle decoctions. So I don't know, you know, there, there, there may be hope yet. <laughs> Get me the honeysuckle stat. <laughs> uh, uh, do you want that IV, PO, uh, nebulized, PR? No, actually, we, we won't nebulize it. We won't nebulize it. Right. So <laughs> this is kind of scary. But kind of what I'm taking from this is that we're collectively learning how to manage this a little bit better as each day goes by. And maybe that's a positive side effect of, of our habitual voracious consumption of information on the internet and social media. Or you know, maybe not. And I don't know about you guys, but what's definitely encouraging for me uh, is how we see everyone pulling together for this common purpose. So everyone's working really well together in the hospital setting right now. And tribalism in healthcare has always been one of my major bug bugbears. And all it took was a global pandemic to fix it. <laughs> Simple. Had we known in the first place. <laughs> All right, guys, I think that's enough out of us. I think it's about time we get an adult in the room. Um, so thanks very much, Carol and Saf. Pleasure, Mel. Thanks, thanks, Mel. Thanks, thanks Mel. Thank you, Saf. Bye -bye. Yeah, cheers, guys. So each month, we'll get a grown-up to check our work. That is, an EM consultant who knows quite a bit about our theme. Or at least more than we do. Rest assured... They all clear that admittedly low bar with buckets to spare. Our adult in the room this month is Dr. Keen McDermott. Dr. McDermott is an emergency medicine consultant in the Matter Hospital in Dublin, Ireland. He is passionate about ultrasound education and teaches this around the world. Keen has worked with SMAC, now CODA, and is dedicated to lifelong hashtag FOMED. Okay, massive thanks to Mohammed and team for putting this episode together. I'm Kean McDermott. I'm a consultant in emergency medicine in the Matter Hospital in Dublin. So this is a super case and it gives us a step-by-step -step exploration of all the clinical challenges we face dealing with COVID-19. There's a few things that struck me when I was listening. 
First up, new dyspnea is always a problem. It's never normal and you can take that for granted. It's up to us to find the problem each and every time. Be careful and watch out for anchoring bias. There's lots of COVID-19 around, but not every patient has it. You can have cardiac problems, CCF, bacterial or viral pneumonia or thromboembolic disease. Try avoid becoming blinded by COVID in a pandemic. You talked about PPE, and this is so, so important. I try and ask for a PPE buddy each time I see someone. At the very least, I look at the posters on the wall or on the back of the door to remind myself of the correct sequence for donning and doffing. You talked about imaging, and here's my take on it. Chest x-ray is poor, but everybody uses it. It may miss up to 40% of cases of COVID-19, so we can't rely on it. CT is not appropriate for every patient, and it should be reserved for complications. Lung ultrasound is key here. It has an accuracy comparable to CT and shows positive for abnormalities even before the patient becomes symptomatic. It's a quick test. It takes only three minutes to finish, which is as long as the time, time as it takes to don and doff. In terms of therapy in the ED, we should focus on great basic care. So I'm talking about fluid therapy, oxygen supplementation, and all the other pieces of critical care. It's great that you talked about the nuances of critical care. In real life, these decisions are best made by a senior team approach, and you need as much front-loaded info available as possible. That IAM guideline that you have referenced is super, and a big shout out to the guideline team who've been hard at work to develop it. Finally, don't forget yourself. This disease is totally new ground, and we're all learning and evolving with it. Always remember you can come chat to your consultant team if you're finding it tough. We are in this together. Okay, Mo, those are my thoughts on the case. Amazing work, again, on putting this whole project together, and look forward to hearing from you soon. Our next segment is all about simulation during the COVID-19 outbreak. I caught up with Professor Dara Byrne for a chat about this last month. Prof Byrne is Professor of Simulation Education in Healthcare at NUI Galway and is the Director of Simulation for the Sale to Hospital Group and ICAPS, the Irish Centre for Applied Patient Safety and Simulation. She has over 15 years experience in the design and delivery of simulation programmes and interventions across undergrad and postgrad levels in all healthcare disciplines. And we're delighted to have her with us. So thanks very much, Prof, for taking the time to join us for a chat. Um, I suppose just wanted to start by asking you how your experience of simulation has been so far through this crisis. Thanks very much, Mo. I'm delighted to be here talking about simulation, my favorite topic. I think the first thing that, you know, everybody would identify with is that, that it's challenging you know, across the undergraduate and the postgraduate setting, that just trying to deliver any education in this climate is really putting us to the pin of our collar. In NUI Galway and in ICAPS, we work across the undergraduate and the postgraduate setting. So I've experience of both and they're slightly different. So it's interesting, I think, to think about this. It's very challenging in the undergraduate setting to deliver um, Mm -hmm. education. If you think about it, it's quite hard to justify having students on the ward in in what was once a learning environment and now is is a very challenging, risky environment. In terms of the the postgraduate or our clinical staff, that's a different kettle of fish because training them uh, for work is essential. What they do is essential. So it's different. So education and training, Mm -hmm. while challenging, has to go on. Um, And we're delivering training, simulation training to small groups with COVID precautions in place. But you have to pick and choose what's important to you. So if you think about the skills that are required for new staff or even for existing staff in PPE, donning and doffing, 
airway management, uh, proning in the ICU, using mm-hmm. NIV, and even very core skills like venipuncture and cannulation, they become very challenging in a patient who's COVID positive. So training is required for people coming in to support us, but also upskilling uh, the guys who are there already. Yeah. So you'll see ICUs using quite a lot of in-situ sim, I think, across the country for their airway management and for proning. And then you'll see skills labs and simulation labs training in COVID deterioration simulations and in skills using uh, social distancing and, 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 and being careful about hand hygiene and uh, precautions. Yeah. And I suppose kind of on that point, with us all trying to social distance as much as we can, there's definitely a trade-off there when we want to engage in simulation teaching and training. You kind of hear in a lot of places about people targeting their simulation training versus trying to keep it broad to develop people's skill sets kind of, you know, on a broader level rather than focusing it uh, specifically on COVID-19 related scenarios. Yeah. So, I mean, there again, it's a trade off. And I think most places are focusing on COVID training at the moment. I mean, running COVID simulations for small numbers and, and doing it in a clever way. When we run COVID simulations, they're mostly around deteriorations and kind of getting in and getting out of rooms. Um, and then there's the the arrest scenarios. In terms of, you know, what happens beyond COVID, our centres running, you know, the normal simulations and the normal skills. In general, no, I would say in Ireland, um, but in very large centres where in the US in particular, where simulation is how they do business, they have continued to run uh, uh, stuff, a simulation that's not related to COVID. But what Mm -hmm. we have done um, is they are converting a lot of their face-to-face simulation to a remote format for the moment. So it's quite interesting uh, how people are adapting moving into a uh, virtual reality platform use, um, immersive VR, lots of things uh, happening in big simulation centers. Who, who, yeah. And that's because a lot of their training is dependent on it. But there's, there's things for us to learn uh, going forward as to how we do this. Uh, and so it's exciting and tricky, but still ongoing. It definitely is, yeah. And I suppose that's kind of one thing that's probably universal is that this is kind of forcing us all to adapt and kind of change how we do things, you know, um, even us who haven't had to change our roles. It's probably universally true. People are, are finding it very kind of disorientating, you know, coming into something that used to be familiar and finding everything uh, is changing day by day and how you do things and, and, uh, and how you operate. And I suppose a lot of people are taking up old roles that they had before on the front line um, that they haven't had in a number of years. And a number of people are being redeployed into new roles. Um, do you think SIM has a role to play in easing that transition for, for people? Uh, it definitely does. And I think, um, you know, if you're talking to people who are interested in SIM and who work in SIM, that, that's really a no-brainer for them because um, they can see they can see how, how SIM can, you know, you can recreate the environment that somebody's going into in a safe setting. I think if you're not into SIM, that the easiest thing way to see how this works is if you think about skills training, training nursing staff coming back to work after 10 years or retired doctors or whatever it is, mm-hmm. it makes sense that you would tra- train them in, uh, you know, in, in their base core skills using task trainers and simulation. But beyond that, 
uh, teaching people leadership skills and to step up to the plate is, is a core part of, of uh, mannequin-based simulation and non-technical skills training. But you can simulate Absolutely. anything if you think about it. You can simulate any mm. environment and any complexity. And computer-based simulation and modeling now are key to predicting how things work or, or might mm. work, uh, particularly in COVID. So any, as far as I'm concerned, uh, and maybe people would say, well, she would say that, uh, anything is possible with simulation. Yeah, very good. And I, I suppose then beyond the educational value of sim, in in a moment like this where, like we said, everything's changing so rapidly and there's kind of new processes popping up left, right and center for, for, for different things that used to be familiar, what role do you think sim has in kind of aiding mapping those processes and kind of, you know, analyzing hazards that might be related to those? Mm, it's an interesting one and it's, it's sort of, it's, it's an area that simulation has moved into probably more recently. I think everybody knows, can understand, oh, simulation for education and training. Yes, that's practicing on those uh, mannequins and on those, that those simulators. I can understand that. But the role of simulation in testing systems and protocols and looking at your facility design um, and device testing. It's, it's really exciting. And it's something that the uh, we in the Irish Centre for Applied Patient Safety and Simulation have, have kind of moved into. So we use simulation to look at the planning of the uh, rooms for the COVID positive patients. Um, because people think, oh, yeah, okay, there'll be a bed and there'll be X and Y and that'll be fine. But when you start to simulate it and you realise that when you get into that room, you shouldn't be going in and out of the door. So, you know, you need to take everything with you. So the question is, well, what is in the room? Which way should the monitor face so you can see it out the door? And so you can simulate that and not learn by uh, having a room that you get into and suddenly nothing is in it. You can. We did that a lot of that by simulating the room, but also with these sort of tabletop exercises, which can, in some centres, can be quite elaborate, a bit like kind of battleship exercises. That's quite interesting to do. Um, and, and it's similar to looking at how buildings are designed before they are built or how the flow would would happen in a building before it before it uh, it, it is built. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, and I suppose the, the like those diagnostics that you kind of get from those exercises mm-hmm. running the simulations to test out those processes and all that. What, what's been your experience of feeding back those results or those diagnostics to the organization? Yeah, so that that can be a tricky part. But so again, we've possibly learned the hard way. Um, Before you do any of these things, you have to engage with uh, either the team or the the the, uh, or the facility or the management that uh, this will ultimately be fed back to. So uh, because you can end up doing all this work and then nothing ever happens uh, and and it can be Mm -hmm. deflating. Um, So what we have we've kind of rebranded ourselves as a problem solving uh, organize, uh, group. And we, so we will say to a team or to the management or to the organization, uh, okay, so, so what problems have you got at the moment? Because we may be able to help you with those. So what you're feeding back to them is actually what was their original problem. Uh, mm-hmm. So that that's the best way to go about it. There's there's a lot of resources floating around for simulations and um, a few sim banks and all that. Um, 
Is there anything uh, out there that you found particularly useful when you've been preparing for all this? Yeah, there's there is an awful lot of stuff. I agree with you. Um, I think you know everybody's emails are being bombarded yeah. by uh, various uh, companies and everything sending uh, information. Uh, the Society for for uh, Healthcare Simulations they really are a fantastic um, resource for webinars and COVID related resources. So there's two or three webinars conducted every week around simulation at the moment in uh, relating to covid and i have to say that under normal conditions ssh is an excellent resource they have a huge mm. library and resource center but they have an enormous number of special interest groups and so you know if you're interested specifically in tabletop exercises or if you are the manager of a simulation center there's a special interest group for that i think that that's a good resource they have their own journal which is this uh, uh, simulation in healthcare which is a very big simulation journal and all mm-hmm. the publications are available on that very good Excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking all this time to um, to chat to us again, Prof. Okay, thank you. As we mentioned earlier in the show, looking after ourselves is more important than ever with all the extra pressures on healthcare workers at the moment. With all this in mind, we were very excited to get Dr. Una Kennedy on the show to talk to us about wellness in emergency medicine. Dr. Kennedy is an EM consultant in St. James's Hospital and also sits on the ICEMT as a Human Factors in Patient Safety Rep and the RCHEM Sustainable Working Practice Committee. She also co-authored the RCHEM's Wellness Compendium, a resource that it's hard to overstate the value of. Trust me, if you haven't read it, do yourself a favor after you listen to this interview, of course. Okay, so thanks again, Una, for coming on and uh, taking the time to chat to us. just wanted to start by asking you how the Wellness Compendium came about and what brought you to working on it. Well, thanks for having me, Mo. It's, it's a pleasure to, to be talking to you this morning. So my involvement with the Wellness Compendium was as a member of the Sustainable Working Practices Committee for Orchem. So when the committee was brought together, I was nominated as the Republic of Ireland rep. So they had a, a rep from each of, of the nations, as, as they call it in Orkham, um, mm-hmm. to sit on the committee. And um, I suppose we were just divvying out the work and trying to figure out where people's interests lay. And so when it came to looking at well-being and um, helping to put some resources together, I suppose I, I jumped to that one and put my hand up and said I'd be delighted to do it. I was collaborating with Susie Hewitt, who's a, an EM consultant in Derby, and she's a stellar emergency physician and a wonderful person. So to be able to collaborate with Susie and work together on something so important with her was was a great opportunity. So that's how it all started. Yeah, and it's a, it's a fantastic resource, and I'm, I'm sure I'm uh, definitely not the only person who's benefited loads from it since it came out. So it's really, really, really good. I suppose emergency medicine in general, it's a, it's a specialty that seems to lend itself to burnout and issues around looking after ourselves. And in this current climate, it's obviously very important to be looking after ourselves and each other. Is there any specific things that you'd suggest or recommend that people do or focus on? Oh, loads. <laughs> Where do I start? I think the first thing to do is to acknowledge that these really are extraordinary times. And so no matter how we're feeling and however we are responding, either mentally or physically, whatever that response is, is, is a normal response to an extraordinary situation. 
And in terms of looking after yourself, I think there's a lot of things that we can do. And I think we need to remember that it is each of our own responsibility in as much as we can to turn up to work in as good condition um, as we can and to mind ourselves during our shifts. It's interesting, I was reading a blog on the on the new Orchem app, which I'm sure we'll talk about later on, about looking after your own oxygen mask first and the concept of just self-care and, you know, taking a break and and going to the bathroom and, and drinking water in your shift before you review that one extra ECG or, or check in on that one extra patient that you need to look after yourself before you can look after your patients and, and your team. In terms of practically what you can do, as I say, I, can, I, could, I could talk for hours on this one, but there's lots of different models for what is health or what is well-being. And one that I like is from the University of Arizona, from the Integrative Medicine um, Center there. Um, and they talk about sleep and good sleep hygiene movement or exercise and it doesn't need to be you know running a marathon it's just even going out for a walk or even on your break during a shift to go out for a walk Mm -hmm. to look after um, your environment so that's even your home environment and simple things like decluttering that sort of thing nutrition being very um, proactive about your own nutrition and your, your diet and then hydration and what you drink in terms of limiting caffeine and alcohol then relationships so staying connected So they say, you know, this whole thing of social distancing will really, it's physical distancing is what we've been asked to do. Mm -hmm. We really need to stay socially connected with whoever those people are, our loved ones are who we can't be seeing um, during these times. Spirituality, I suppose that's a harder one to to cover in a a short uh, space. And then resilience. So, and and that just gives you the tools that you need to to manage stress um, in a stressful time. So things like uh, meditation, practicing meaning, gratitude, and that sort of thing. So as I say, each of those I could explore in, in further detail. Yeah. And I suppose you mentioned the Arkham app and kind of uh, speaks to the next question that, that I was going to ask you. We've all got that personal responsibility to look after ourselves and to address those different aspects that you had mentioned there. Do you think that the organizations that we're a part of or that we work within also have some responsibility to some degree to look after look after individuals? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, I think, you know, I think the organizations in general and I think, you know, are, are doing their best in, in terms of um, government organizations with, mm-hmm. with what they've made available. Um, I know that the HSC has made available an app called Silver Cloud, which is a well-being app with a similar idea to the Orchem app you know, made available to all HSE staff uh, for free. Um, For example, here in St. James's, we are going to be launching a staff safety and wellbeing app ourselves um, this week with James's specific information to help people to stay up to date with, you know, relevant, good evidence-based information about COVID, but also specifically looking at um, some wellbeing resources that have been developed locally. And I'm involved in, in the, I suppose, the editorial part of that app. And so I think, you know, each organization is doing what they can do. So the other thing to, to remember is that there are more higher level, I suppose, for use of a better term, uh, supports available. So what was the employee assistance program is now the employee assistance and counseling service. So you can get those free mm-hmm. counseling available from that. Um, I know in James's as well, they have launched for staff a, a whole suite of supports um, under the umbrella term of psychological first aid, which is a WHO uh, recommended approach for staff members at times like this. And I'm sure that many other hospitals around the country have similar examples of excellence in terms of um, staff support during this time, which is really important. Absolutely. And can you tell us a bit more about the Arkham app and how uh, how listeners can get it? Oh, yes, yeah, sure. So every um, member and fellow in good standing, so if you've paid your um, subscription at the moment, has access, free access to the app. They've also extended it for the, the next six months. They've extended it to all EM nurses working in the Republic of Ireland. 
um, and I am hoping that they are going to um, expand the availability to people who are not members and fellows of the college, but working in emergency departments in Ireland um, in the coming months, although that hasn't been that, that's not definite yet. Um, so the app is called 87% and 87% is the name of the app development company. Uh, they've worked with the police and some ambulance services in the UK to develop, I guess, profession specific resources. And um, so if you're a, a member of fellow, you should have been sent an email from or you were sent an email from the college with a link that you can use to download the app. And then when you it, it's a very interactive app, when you when you uh, download it first, you can do uh, scores in seven different domains of well-being. And then you get to retest your scores in 80 days and it can target resources for you in those different domains. The content is delivered in different media. There's top tips, there's blogs, there's there's podcasts. So there's a whole wealth. I think literally there's some something in it for everybody uh, in terms of, yeah. of well-being. So I could really highly recommend it. I think it's a great, great yeah. app. I've been looking at it for the last week or so anyways, and it, it is actually really, really good because it kind of gives you a breakdown of your mental fitness score, it calls it in kind of seven different domains and then subdivides it further after that. And uh, yeah, no, it kind of goes, goes kind of a bit deeper than that surface sort of thing that you expect from these sort of apps. So it's really, really good. And the kind of daily, daily little exercises it suggests are, are, are brilliant as well. So kind of beyond the Arkham app, are there any other resources that you've come across that you've found kind of useful or helpful or anything that you can recommend? I think in terms of sleep hygiene during COVID, um, you won't get anything better than what Mike Farkar from Guys and St. Thomas's has been putting out. And he's he has put a lot of resources um, on sleep uh, for shift workers in the NHS, um, a lot of which we borrowed to, to write the sleep chapter in the wellness com compendium. But he's written a specific uh, sleep during COVID-19 article, which I think is very good. That's easily, easily found um, just by Googling it. I think on, on the Orchem app, you'd find specific information on each of the, you know, on stress management or sleep hygiene, nutrition. Uh, there's there's blogs on, on all of those. I guess the other thing just to bear in mind um, is exactly that, is is managing um, the constant stream of information that's coming. And um, mm -hmm. there's a lot of white noise. And, and I think being very disciplined about where you get your information and when you access your information is important. I think one tip that I would give is to avoid reading anything pandemic related in the hour before you go to bed. And I mean, Mike Farquhar talks about not having any screens in the hour before you go to bed as well. But I think you just read, need to find uh, one or two sources that you that you like and that you can relate to and to limit, limit it to that and just be careful of information overload, I think is as opposed to seeking out more things, just be very careful as to what you read and consume. It's brilliant. They're all fantastic tips. Thanks very much for that, Una. And thanks for taking the time to chat to us again. Yeah, that's my absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me, Mo. And that is it for this very special first episode of The Case.Report. You can find us on Twitter at The Case Report. They wouldn't let me stick a dot in there, I'm afraid. If you like what you heard, subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you leave us a rating or review, sure, I'd only be delighted. Special thanks to Dr. Kennedy and Prof. Byrne for taking the time to chat to us. And a special thanks to Dr. Keen McDermott, whose support and advice from when this was but a stray thought at the back of my mind helped us get here today. Until next time, may your coffee be strong and your rounds be grand. TCR out.